Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Snap Out of It Radio Network. Hear all our great shows across the world. Join our community at snapoutofitradionetwork.com. So wake up, stand up, and snap out of it. Empowered Love with author, self-mastery coach, and relationship expert, Melanie Tanya Evans. Take back your power, heal your soul, and set yourself free. Free through Empowered Love. And now your host of Empowered Love, Melanie Tanya Evans. Hi everyone, I'm Mel, and welcome to another Empowered Love radio show. So welcome to all the listeners and all the friends from all over the world that tune into these shows and today is another Thriver show and I have a lovely lady Naringa for this Thriver show and I think a few of you will be able to relate or be quite inspired from this show because Naringa unlike a lot of the other Thrivers is not a narcoholic and what I mean by that is that she's not a lady that has worked and worked and worked and worked NARP and actually didn't need to, but we're going to unfold this story and you're going to learn about Naringa's story, her narcissistic experience and what she's been through and where she is at now. And to get this started, I'm going to introduce Naringa. So hello, Naringa, and thank you so much for coming on and being a thriver. Hi, Mel. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure being here. Beautiful. So, Naringa, we're going to get started about your story. So, because your relationship is a long-term, was a long-term marriage to a narcissist. So, can we start off by you telling the listeners about how you met and how you formed a relationship with him? Oh, of course. I remember the first time I met the narc. It was the summer of 1980, and I was in between my junior and senior years of college, and I was still living with my parents at the time. And it was during that time, during the summer, when I, um, when I was home from school, that I received a letter, which, and that letter was an invitation to play Dungeons and Dragons, and it was from the husband of the sister of an ex-boyfriend. And now that I think back on, on this, I am convinced that my ex-boyfriend and his sister were both narcs. And because I have read and adored Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, I was more than excited to be participating in a D&D campaign. And little did I know decades later that D&D would come to mean an altogether different thing as far as the narc was concerned. Yes, we all know that one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Anyhow, when I got to the apartment, I immediately saw, saw that the narc was the polar opposite of his brother. He looked much younger than his brother, even though he was about a couple of years older. He was clean cut, not really my kind of type. Um, but he was a good-looking fellow, and he appeared to be a fun and clever guy. And so anyhow, when it came to Dungeons & Dragons, the narc wasn't a player. He was the dungeon master. And it was the dungeon master's role to serve as a game referee. 
that is to control all aspects of the game, except for the action of the player characters. And it was also his role to describe to the other players what they see and hear. And really, what an ideal role for the narc to be in total control of the player's universe. As the summer, as the summer continued, I would look forward to the Friday nights when we all gathered together at the Narcs Brothers apartment to play D&D. I had gotten past my initial biases towards the Narcs' appearance and was actually finding myself being attracted to him. And while spending the night playing D&D, the Narc and I would find ourselves flirting with each other. And one weekend that summer, he was going to visit his childhood friend and that friend's wife in a seaside town, which was about two hours up the coast. He was bringing his brother and sister-in-law with him, and he asked me to join them. So, of course, I said, yeah. So, never mind it being a double date. This was going to be a triple date. And, boy, what a magical time I had. When the narc brought me back to my parents' house at four in the morning, I was floating on air. I don't even think I felt my feet touching the driveway as I walked to the back door to let myself in. And you would think that with my coming home at four in the morning that I would have slept until noon, but it was Sunday and with my parents being staunch old world Roman Catholics, there was no way they were going to allow me to sleep through church. So about five and a half hours later, I was up and walking to church. And while I was walking to church, I was reflecting on that magical day before when all of a sudden I froze in my tracks with a realization that crossed my mind. I had, before that, I had experienced two dysfunctional relationships where I found myself being absorbed into my boyfriend's personalities. And I was finally enjoying what it felt like to be independent and getting to know myself better. And reflecting back on the day before and seeing the direction where this could be heading, I panicked. And I was afraid that if I allowed this magical time with a narc to follow its assumed natural course, that I was going to lose my independence and have my personality become enmeshed in his. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to hurt the narc's feelings with any possible rejection. And because we only had that one magical day, I just couldn't come right out and tell him, oh, I'm sorry, I don't think this is going to work out. I was 22 at the time and really quite immature as far as relationships go. Plus, I never had the experience of witnessing an emotionally mature and healthy relationship. So what I did is I decided to start skipping the Friday D&D nights altogether. Shortly after I received a letter from the narc's sister-in-law, now remember, this was before the Internet and text messaging, and she wrote that the narc was engaged to get married. Now, this was, I was already back at school when this happened. I go, seriously? It was just a couple of months ago that we experienced that magical day. And so I was rather taken aback by his finding a girlfriend and being engaged to get married in such a very short time. But I really didn't have time to dwell on that as I was in my senior year in college and I 
needed to focus on my senior project. And, you know, and that went, you know, that went along. And then in the middle of May, um, I got a cre- uh, I got a greeting card from him. And it was one of these combination birthday and graduation greeting cards because my birthday was actually the day before my college graduation. And when I, when I got the card, all I could think of, God, he's got some nerve. And I left it at that. And then after I graduated college and returned home, I reconnected with the D&D group and only to discover that there were new people there that I haven't met before in that group. And that wasn't all that I discovered. Apparently, the NARC was no longer engaged. And supposedly, according to him, his fiance had a nervous breakdown and returned the engagement ring through the mail. And knowing what I know now about narcs, that probably didn't even come close to what actually happened. So after that discovery, let the mind games begin. And having discovered that the narc was once again single, my interest in him was rekindled, along with the fear of from the year before when I didn't want to lose my independence and have my personality absorbed in his. I should have heeded that red flag and just left things at that, but I didn't. So that whole summer was spent struggling with my ambivalence concerning the narc. So by the time I did eventually start dating him, I played such a tune on my own head that it really didn't take much for him to pick up where I left off. So when did the red flags, because you mentioned, I mean, that obviously was a massive red flag, and it's very, very consistent of narcissists, that they move on, secure supply, and they enmesh, and they get engaged, or they, they do all sorts of things incredibly quickly. You know, healthy, mature people just don't do that. Massive mm-hmm. red flag. But we didn't know, we just, and we didn't realize. But when did the red flags really start presenting? Well, it was by the end of August when I moved into an economically depressed seaside town that was 45 minutes from my parents' house. And I moved there just to be closer to the narc who lived 15 minutes away. For the first year there, I shared an apartment with three other people who were my fellow Dungeons & Dragons players. And after there was some friction with the roommates, I had to find a place of my own. And what happened was that the narc wound up falsely accusing me of issuing him an ultimatum to choose between him and his friends. And that's something I never did. I don't do ultimatums. And no amount of protesting this false statement made any difference. He just held on to that false belief, like so many other of his, like so many of his other false beliefs, with pitbull tenacity. Meanwhile, um, at around the same time, my father suffered another heart attack and needed to be hospitalized. As with his first heart attack hospitalization, my father did not give his cardiologist permission to share his medical information with the family, much to our great frustration. So with his most current hospitalization, there was information that we felt his cardiologist should know However, the cardiologist would not even listen to us. Desperate, my mother asked the narc if he could help out, and he agreed. 
He said that he called my father's cardiologist and ran into, into the same roadblocks that my family road, ran into. And so his suggestion was to have my mother have my father declared mentally incompetent. I mean, you can imagine the shock and panic this created for my mother, my sister, and me. This was not the route my mother wanted to take. Being an immigrant and not having the best command of the English language and familiarity with the culture, this took her way outside her comfort zone. As such, the narc's suggestion was something that she just did not feel comfortable she was going to follow through on, and she just she, she put her foot down and said, no, I'm not doing this. Now, most people would have accepted that this was the family's decision and let it go at that, but not the narc. He was highly insulted and incensed. What he saw was that my mother asked for his help and that when help was offered, she stabbed him in the back by rejecting his help. In fact, he festered on that thought for several years and just wouldn't let go of that injury. And that was another red flag that I disregarded. More red flags kept popping up. You know, some of them were large, some of them were small. And while the narc was working during the week, he participated in a gymnastic troupe on the weekends. I remember being alone with him in the gymnastic studio one day. He was moody and upset, upset about upset about something. I don't I don't even remember what it was. But I do remember looking at him as he sat on the floor, and I remembered watching the transformations coming over his face. I don't think that what I was seeing was his actual physical face, but it was more of an energy that was superimposed over his face. It was an ugly energy, and I remember being repulsed by it. That ugliness that I saw was such a sharp contrast to the person that I was infatuated with. I didn't know that at the time I was ex- what, what I was experiencing was cognitive dis- um, dissonance, and I also didn't recognize it as another red flag warning me to stay away from the narc. I was too wrapped under his spell to acknowledge that there was anything wrong with this person especially when he was so good and attentive to me. Not only was he a caring person, he was devastatingly intelligent. In fact, I never, ever before encountered a person with such amazing intelligence. Also, I was afraid of being alone. I was 24 years old at the time, and That was the same age that my sister had already married. And I was thinking, is I going to be alone for the rest of my life? Also, there was another strong motivation for remaining with the narc. He came from a well-to-do family who lived right on the waterfront in a private and desirable neighborhood. His parents owned their own business where he worked as an engineer and you know that's a high-paying career, and coming from the poor from a poor family, I saw the narc as my ticket out of poverty. I admit it was not very high-minded of me, but I hope that my deep feelings for him would have more than made up for that 
for my suspect agenda. And then finally, when we did get engaged the year after, there were no flowers or romantic dinner. His proposal was basically telling me, get in the car. And he drove us to a jewelry store where he had me pick out a ring. There was absolutely no tenderness involved in selecting the engagement ring. And much later on, I learned that this engagement in his head was another false accusation. It was, he was convinced that I gave him another ultimatum, either put a ring on my finger or say goodbye. Yeah, that's incredible, isn't it? When Mm -hmm. you start learning about the things that are going through a narcissist's head that just do not make sense and the things that they keep bottling up and they take umbrage to. And I remember a long, long time ago when I saw a personality disorder specialist about my first narcissistic experience and she said something very, very interesting. She said that when a narcissist thinks a thought three times, that to them it's real. Wow. I know, it's frightening because you just cannot fathom how the mind works and believes things like that. It's just incredible. So so at this point, yeah, there's definitely red flags, absolutely. So, and we all know that in narcissistic relationships, when the cracks start appearing, they do. They get worse and worse mm-hmm. and worse. So what were the worst parts of the relationship at this point? Well, at this point, there was a pattern of accusing me of making ultimatums, which never existed. These ultimatums didn't even cross my mind. He would ascribe to me behaviors and intentions that were utter fantasies. And when we would have a heated discussion, he would turn his back and walk away whenever I would ask him a question. And this, of course, would get me really upset. As I was raised that when somebody asked you a question, the polite and considerate thing is to answer it. I can relate to that hugely, absolutely, mm-hmm. with both narcissists, that it, it's just mind-boggling how they cannot, will not, they completely refuse to ask a, answer a simple direct question, definitely. Oh. oh, yeah. I mean, there was, even my daughter knew from when she was little that, there was no way he would answer a direct question. Yes, they just don't. Yeah. Anyhow, his silent treatment would last for days, sometimes weeks. And during that time, I would be obsessing over my head and spinning my wheels. What could have I done wrong to get him so so upset? I would plead with him, please tell me what I did wrong so that I won't do it again. And Sometimes he would break his silence long enough to comment that I've already proven to him that I can't change. And then when he would finally tell me what I did wrong and why he was so upset, it was so far removed from reality that I could have not even dreamt up something that bizarre in my most wildest imagination. And there was nothing that I could say or do to dissuade him from his beliefs about my behavior and the motivations for it. And all of our arguments were due to his claim that I was either thoughtless or inconsiderate. After all, he was very intelligent and had very 
carefully crafted the persona of being a very considerate and caring person. And this was pretty much how the first 12 years of our marriage went. And upsetting as these events were, I still thought we had a pretty good marriage. I thought I was the luckiest girl on the planet to snag such a wonderful catch like him. I mean, he was handsome, he was kind, and no man could ever come close to holding a candle to his intelligence. And isn't it incredible how we can look at those things, like the logical things, and really, really miss what our emotions are screaming at us in those awful, awful narcissistic times. Mm-hmm. And in the put-downs and the stripping of, um, you know, and I think that was a classic what you said, you know, a comment like, you've given me all the proof why you can't change. That is just so incredibly narcissistic. So what happened when his mask really cracked and fell and came off? Oh, gosh. That was in the summer of 19... 19- yeah, 1996. But I was trying. I was trying to create an income with my creativity, and I had already approached a local community center about teaching some classes there. But unfortunately, there was very little interest. Also, so at that time, I was working at the postal for the postal service, and I just wanted to get out and I wanted to do something with my creativity. Anyhow, the narc started lecturing me on the futility of my plans, commenting on how his brother failed at making a living with his music, and I defended myself. And then somehow the subject switched from me being naive about wanting to make a living out of my creativity to an issue of trust. I can't even remember how or where the switch occurred, but I just remembered that it won the argument wound up going to the issue of trust. And so speaking of trust, I mentioned to him that I was the one who should be having questions about trust, especially, you know, how could the both of us who were when we were who were making decent money at the time be living hand to mouth between paychecks? We had been married for twelve years and he still could not bring himself to allow me to participate in family finances. So he just turned his back and went downstairs. And having seen the scenario play through several times over, I did something different. I turned around and went into my room, which at this point he had vacated some time ago after a fight we had because that was his way of getting back at me is to move out of the bedroom. But anyhow, I went back to my bedroom and I was going to go through my closet to pull out clothes that I was going to donate to the Salvation Army. And while I was trying on the clothes to see which ones still fit and putting the ones that didn't fit into a pile on the bed, he walked walked into the room. And his face was red. He was shaking And something told me that he was on a dangerous edge, that if he went over the edge, I could either wind up very seriously hurt or even dead. And I instinctively knew that I should not provoke him, and my mind was furiously racing on how not to provoke him. And 
it settled finally on con- continuing on doing what I was doing, which was pulling the clothes out of the closet and praying that this was the right thing to do to keep him from going the edge. And I also remember my mind separating from my body as though an anticipation of whatever trauma to my body was going to come. Well, he continued raging at me, but I just didn't hear a word he said because I had been out of my body. Finally, I heard him say, if you think you can do a better job, then go ahead and do it. And with that, he threw his checkbook and the bills that he had clutching in his hand all that time. And he left my room. In fact, he left the house to bring my daughter to his mother's house. And I was shaken, but I picked up the checkbook and bills. No, never, never mind the pile of clothes on the bed now. I just went and got the checkbook and bills, and I proceeded to go through them. And that's when I discovered the reason why we were having so much trouble making ends meet. He had already $20,000 of credit card debt. Not only that, one-third of that debt was from pornography purchases. And all this time, the narc had been trying to convince me that his difficulties in allowing me to participate in family finances were due to his challenges and trying to overcome issues of trust on account of his parents constantly undermining him. And yet, here I was finding out that he was the one who's been violating my trust all this time. Gee, can we say projection? Yeah, sure we can. But anyhow, from that day hence, he was never again the same person that I married. And from that day forth, I viewed our marriage as irretrievably broken. I stopped loving my husband, and I could no longer bring myself to share my body with someone who had violated my trust. And the stress of discovering this massive debt that we were in, along with this backlash that I experienced, well, excuse me, I was was stressed from this massive debt that we were in, and plus I was going through a lot of backlash from the higher-ups at my workplace because I spoke up against the unfairness and hostility that was directed towards a temporary employee, and all that stress was just enough to make me resign from my job. And in the five months from discovering the NARC's financial abuse, our credit card, the credit card debt jumped from $20,000 to $60,000. Wow, what a discovery after all that time. Incredible. Mm-hmm. That's what happens when we start to realize the truth and we start to find out what's actually really been going on. It's really quite incredible. So when did you start understanding the parts of yourself that you needed to heal? Well, it was it was at this time that I recognized my own codependence. My father was an alcoholic. And those who have been raised in an alcoholic household understand the level of constant dysfunction that affects every family member. My father's alcoholism affected me in the manner that I vowed that I was not going to marry an alcoholic. And I didn't. The narc didn't drink alcohol. 
nor did he indulge in illegal drugs. But the more I learned about codependency, the more I realized that there is something about a codependent that gets picked up on an addictive person's radar. And that's one of the reasons why some individuals constantly find themselves repeating abusive relationships. And even though the narc wasn't an alcoholic, he had other addictions. As such, while I vowed never to marry an alcoholic, I didn't take into consideration other addictions. So to help me with my own codependency issues, I started attending adult children of alcoholics meetings, and those meetings were a lifesaver. To see all those heads just nodding in agreement as I told my story was not only validating, it was empowering. It was liberating to finally learn that I was not the crazy one that I was led to believe by the narc. And with each meeting, I became more and more empowered. Of course, this this did not sit well with the narc. He ramped up his psychological abuse with my increasing defiance. And I continued going to the meetings despite his snide remarks and his veiled innuendos. When I finally did stop going to the meetings, it was because I had noticed that there were some people there who were not interested in healing. All they wanted to do was to repeat the same war stories over and over. And it was at this point when I realized I've gotten all that I could get from out of that group. So you, before you realized he was a narcissist, Naringa, what did you think his issues were? Well, back in those days when I knew nothing about narcissistic personality disorder, I attributed his issues to his mental health issues which were growing as the years went on. I mean, the list started off just with started off with severe depression and then it finally included anhedonia, which is the inability to experience pleasure from activities that use, that are usually found enjoyable. Then there was dysthemia, which is serious chronic depression. Then bipolar, which later on got downgraded to schizoaffective disorder. We also had obsessive compulsive disorder, panic anxiety disorder, and agoraphobia. And also thrown into the mix was Asperger's, which I suspected he may have even coerced his doctor into diagnosing him with. And somewhere around 2003, Bernard had his first um, psychiatric hospitalization, and and from that point on, there was a long parade of mental health professionals that just marched through his revolving door. Not a single one of them was successful in convincing the narc that there was no magic pill, no magic cocktail. I mean, not a single one of these mental health providers was was able to convince him that he needed to put forth an effort, whether it's doing homework or participating in cognitive behavioral therapy. He fired countless therapists due to their inability to help him. He either perceived them to be far less intelligent than him, so therefore they weren't capable of helping him, or he perceived them to be in cahoots with me. 
In fact, it seemed that whenever a therapist was getting close to the truth of the matter, that would be the time when he would fire that therapist. And I remember one such therapist who asked that I come in in for a session with the NARC. Excuse me. And while we were in session, there were a couple of incidents where the NARC accused me of personally attacking him after I voiced my feelings. And when the therapist asked the NARC what made him form these opinions about me, the NARC stated that it was my body language, that my body language betrayed my intention. Well, the therapist then proceeded to explain to the NARC that my body language was not one of someone in who was engaged in personal attack, but it was that of someone who was experiencing frustration. And with his explaining this to the NARC, I just exclaimed in relief, thank you. That's what I've been trying to tell him for the past 10 years. Needless to say, that therapist was fired right afterwards, and there was no follow-up appointment. He also attempted to do the same thing with a couple's with a um, with a couple's counselor that another therapist that his therapist insisted that he go see with me, and <clears throat> he got very much put off that this couple's counselor had some private sessions with me, even though he agreed to allow for her to have these private sessions with me. Mm, that's one of the really dead set red flags of a narcissist is when they start actually saying your body language, your stance, the way you're crossing your arms, your tone. And it, that is so, so true. That is so true. It's out of complete frustration because of the twists and the turns and everything and the non-accountability. And of course you're getting frustrated and then the narcissist will see that and use that as a weapon against you. That's an incredibly common narcissistic tactic so all right so I think you know when we look at these long-term relationships of course I understand it even though mine weren't long-term but I know a lot of people you know they can't really sort of understand why people stay for so long we do but can you explain your reasons for staying in the marriage for years oh yeah of course I mean, all those years with the narc after his mask came off, no, they were stressful, but I stayed with him, giving him whatever help and support I could. And part of that was due to my parental conditioning that marriages until death do you part. It was my duty to stay with him in sickness and health and for better or for worse. I mean, what kind of person would I be if I abandoned an obviously sick person? And plus, also, it was a cultural thing. No one in my family had gotten divorced. In fact, divorce among my um, my people, my cult, uh, was cons- would have been considered a scandal. However, when my daughter was about nine years old, I had it. I went back to one of my old jobs so that I could start saving money to pay for a divorce. And it was that summer or the next when I did go to a lawyer and put down retain, put down my retainer. I was feeling really good about it. I felt that even though the narc and I could not get along as husband and wife under the same roof, 
that we could um, still be very good friends. Now, after all, I've known people who were in similar situations, people who fought like crazy while they were married, but then became the best of friends after they divorced. And I was hopeful that it would be the same in my case. In fact, I was convinced that it would. And so after meeting with the lawyer, I announced that evening to the NARC that I'd seen the lawyer and that I would be filing for divorce. And the NARC was really calm and said, oh, you will let me have my divorce. But before I could feel any happiness or relief, he added that he is going to be petitioning for full custody of our daughter, even though he knew that the state that we lived in favored the mother. He said that he, in good conscience, as if the monarch even has a conscience, could not allow me to have this divorce without his putting up a fight to be granted full custody of our daughter. I mean, talk about knocking the wind out of my sails. So uh, I, when I asked him why was he doing this, why was he going for full custody, he said that our daughter was not safe with me. And when I asked him why he felt that way, he, he replied that he felt our daughter was not safe with me because I yelled at her. Jeez, like, what parent doesn't yell at their kids from time to time? But at the same time, there was a lot of fear of what the NARC could do next. He was a respected professional whose parents were pillars of the community. He was very articulate, and he was very proud of his ability to always win an argument. And he was especially proud of his ability to play mind games and manipulate people. And unlike him, I didn't have such a resume and pedigree. I didn't have the support he did. I had, and also I had far less emotional self-control back then. And just a little bit of butt-pushing on his part would have been enough to have me fly off the handle. And so against the backdrop of his deliberate calmness, my crazy, shrieking, banshee behavior would create quite a contrast. As such, I was very afraid of the damage the NARC could do um, when we duped it out in court. I was afraid of losing my daughter. And there was also that fear that I would not be able to afford a contested divorce, especially when I could barely afford to put, when I could barely afford a no-fault divorce. In fact, I paid my lawyer his retainer with a credit card. And it was all these fears that just set me back to the lawyer with my tail between my legs to rescind my intention to get a divorce. And meanwhile, as the years passed, the abuse continued. As my daughter was getting older and more independent, his abuse was also extending to her. I mean, I alternated between fervently wishing him dead to praying hard that he would be made healthy and whole in his mind, body, and soul. Awful. That must have been incredibly hard, having to put your tail between your legs. Awful. Okay. 
So when, Naringa, did you finally decide that enough is enough? Well, the final straw came last year when I had him involuntarily committed through a magistrate's warrant. And the ironic thing about that is is that the behavioral unit that he was committed to was on the floor below where I work. So I would see him from time to time with other patients when I went outside to either throw out the trash or sneak a cigarette. And each time he ignored me, well, which was no big deal because I ignored him as well. But, if, but while he was ignoring me, I could see him being Mr. Congeniality and chatting up a storm with the other patients. And they were just, oh, eating it up and just being so friendly to him. He, he even had the doctors there convinced that he had Asperger's. However, my daughter and I suspected for years that he was using Asperger's as an excuse for his behavior. After all, how could someone with Asperger's lie with the ease that he lies? And how could someone with Asperger's maintain a high level of manipulation for a week and convincing the staff and the patients that he was something that he was not? And while he was at the behavioral health unit, he did not allow the medical personnel any contact with me. And it was only when I discovered that the power of attorney that he signed in 2000, uh, 2003, I was able to talk to his doctors. Basically, I, paid, I had to play the power of attorney card on them. And even then, I would wind up getting into arguments with the doctors because he had manipulated them into believing that he was an all-around great guy whose behaviors were appropriate for the situation he was in. They refused to accept my input that he was a skillful manipulator and that he was manipulating them. And instead, they opted to believe that there was no reason for them to further keep him at the behavioral health unit and that keeping him would then be violating his rights because it would be um, holding a person against his will. And had I been able to play this power of attorney card much sooner, who knows what the outcome would have been. Well, the doctors were going to discharge him despite my expressing my fears that he will come back the same way he went in, but angrier. And when it came time to discharge him, he tried to get a voucher for a cab to bring him home. But apparently that wasn't possible. So on my way home from work, I got a phone call requesting me to bring him home. So I had to turn around and go back. And when I got to the behavioral health unit to collect the NARC, I was informed by one of the nurses that the NARC expressed the wish that I do not talk to him while bringing him home. And after we got home, that's when the abuse reached new heights. He refused to talk to me or our daughter and when he did allow me to talk, he was while holding a voice recorder in his hand and begging me to react and say something that would incriminate me. Whenever we would enter the house, he would glare at us and give us evil looks. And every day he would record a list of my sins and crimes against him. Preposterous accusations and statements such as claiming that I threw his medication at him and that the doctors at the behavioral health unit told him that he's a victim 
of abuse and that he needs to get out fast. And he even spread these lies to his mother who believed him even though she knew he always lies. And in the meantime, his online spending resumed and escalated. He intercepted my attempt to have myself declared payee for his disabilities checks. Even after I showed the Social Security office my power of attorney and submitted the proper paperwork attesting to his psychiatric history and history of financial abuse, he had his monthly disability um, um, checks direct deposited um, and excuse me, he had his the checks rerouted uh, from our joint account into one that he into a private account that he set up. And this was especially concerning to me because I was the one responsible for paying the bills. And from what he told his mother, she said that he had all the intention of giving me the money to pay the bills with, but that he wanted me to beg for it. And never have encountered such a fallout offensive by the NARC before, I started researching emotional and psychological abuse. And up to this point, I was in denial that what I was experiencing was abuse. I did not think I was being abused. And I just attributed his behavior towards me as having to do with his mental health issues. Because after all, up to that point, he had seven psychiatric hospitalizations, one of which was almost two months long. But seeing how he behaved in front of the other patients and the staff and how he manipulated the staff, there was no way that I could deny that what he was doing was with calculated deliberation. And there was no way that I could remain in denial and hope that he would get better. And while reading one of the many articles on psychological abuse that I came across on the web, I was constantly being astounded by seeing the narc in my situation with him reflected in those vast bodies of text. And the pivotal moment came when I read the com when I read the comments. Type narcissistic abuse into your search engine and see what comes up. And so I did what that comment suggested, and I was flabbergasted by what I discovered. It was as though all those authors were flies on the walls in my house, observing him and taking notes. And it was at that point where I decided that I most definitely have to get out of the situation even though I didn't have the financial resources to pay for a divorce, and even though I was rejected by the legal aid societies in town for not being poor enough, I started taking steps anyhow. And those steps involved collecting bank statements and other documentation that proved his financial abuse. I was taking pictures of everything that he was writing in his list of my sins and crimes against him, as well as any notes that he wrote to me, which that was the only way he would communicate to me. And I would email those pictures to myself, which then I compiled into a chronological document. I printed up the emails I exchanged between him and his previous, I mean, I printed up the emails that I exchanged between his, um, with his previous therapist. 
And in no time, I had a three-inch thick binder filled with documentation. And even though I did not have the resources to finance a divorce, I made sure that I was ready when the time came. And I also found an old journal that went back 10 years and I started reading it. It was like reading events that, just, that happened just the day before. And that further confirmed for me that the narc never changed and is not going to change ever. And one of the other things my research led to me was the Narcissistic Abuse Recovery Central Group. And, and that was like one of the most valuable resources that I've come across, and that also led me to the Narcissistic Abuse Recovery Program. So, Naringa, your experience with the Narcissistic Abuse Recovery Program has not been like many other people's experience. So, please share how NARP worked for you. Okay. I'm going to make a confession here. Unlike most folks in the NARP group, I've only used NARP a handful of times. And by saying this, I really don't mean to minimize the importance or, or power of NARP. <clears throat> I have already been doing the inner work for several years. As such, I've already come along a bit when I first discovered this group. <clears throat> but there were gaps that needed to be filled in order for me to make the shifts necessary for my healing, and that's where NARP came in for me. I already had the pieces, but I needed something to help make those pieces work. NARP was like that little screw that holds the two blades of a pair of scissors together. Without that little screw, those two blades are useless, no matter how strong the metal or how sharp the edge is. And when I started doing, when I started working NARP, even on my occasional level, that is when things started happening. I mean, was it, co was it a coincidence that a few months after I started working NARP that I received a partial inheritance that enabled me to hire the best lawyer in town? All these years I've been doing and working the law of attraction to improve my financial, financial situation, and I've had no results. But once NARP came into the picture, there was money. So what happened? I shifted. I had the metaphysical tools. I was very familiar with the principle behind the law of attraction. I'd been a student of metaphysics for 30 years. But I was still stuck at that same vibrational level that I had been for all those years. Sure, my vibration did increase somewhat after the narc's mask came off. And I made the choice to ditch the victim role that I had been stuck in a good portion of my life. But it was NARP that was the critical mass that brought me to the tipping point where the positive change started happening. Positive change that I could see and experience. And once I've reached that tipping point, that does not mean that's where I need to rest. The work is not over. The tipping point is just the beginning. It's the gateway to more magic to come, and I've been experiencing that magic. It's gotten me the means to pay for a divorce. It's gotten the NARC to eventually cooperate with the divorce process. But I also believe that NARP's usefulness is not 
just to be confined to narcissistic abuse recovery. I can also see ways that NARC can be retrofitted to address and help in other situations where fear may hold us back, whether it's fear of flying or fear of having to make cold calls that are required when you're in a sales profession. I see NARP as something that unlocks the door to allow more magic to come into our lives. It is really, really true that NARP is about clearing that fear out so that we are connected to the grid, the grid of life, to be able to unfold what we want to do. And that's so important when you're dealing with a narcissist because if you're stuck in the pain and the fear, you cannot reach forward. You cannot make the things happen in your life that just start falling into place when you get out of pain and fear and you're connected to that expansive grid of life Things start going right. They really do. So he's moved out now, hasn't he, Naringa? You have, he's permanently gone. Permanently gone, but we are still, according to the mediation agreement, I have to, we still have to be remained married for a year. But he has agreed to the divorce. And isn't that wonderful? So you have your home now, you have your life now. Mm-hmm. It's all about that space that's you now and going forward, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's wonderful. Wow. And how, when did you start, when did you start doing NARP, the little bit that you did do with it? When did that happen? Oh, golly, I, really, I can't even remember when I started it. I know, I can't even remember when I ordered it, but I know that, I didn't start it right away, and oh golly, I think it may have been towards um, the uh, towards the end of last year. Mm, yeah, yeah. And then, how long did it take before things started falling into place for you? Well, I got my inher I got a partial on my inheritance money in February. Yeah, yeah. And things have just been able to move since then. Yes. Oh, it's fantastic. So what advice, Naringa, would you give to people that... I know there are going to be people out there that are going to write on the blog and say, wow, your story is like mine. I know, because it always happens. So what advice would you give to people that have been in a situation like yourself? Okay. Well, the longer you stay with a narc, the more intense his crazy-making is going to get. So true. With, so true. Yep. Staying with a narc is like staying on a sinking boat that's taking on water while he's sitting at one end of the boat poking holes in the bottom of the boat while you're at the other end of the boat frantically bailing water and hoping that you can make it to safe harbor before your ship sinks. Mm. So if you have the resources, head for the hills as fast as you can. Get out as fast as you can because the narc is not going to change. Just And just keep reminding yourself that the narc derives his emotional re- reward from causing hurt and harm to others. Don't fall for his lies. Don't fall for his puppy dog eyes and crocodile tears. And above all else, take care of yourself first. Focus on your own healing. Do the narc. And even though I had been a student of metaphysics for 30 years, the NARP, NARP helped fill in the gaps and at an amazing speed. 
that nearly 20 years of it, NARP did in just a matter of like a couple of months what nearly 20 years of inner work didn't accomplish. Just for that alone, NARP is far worth more than its weight in gold. And if I had it back then, you would have been listening to a wholly different story today. And I would like to add that when I bought NARP, my financial situation was the pit. I had gone through bankruptcy and foreclosure. Our expenses were very often exceeding our income. It was common for me to go two or three weeks straight without having enough money to buy groceries. But I felt strongly that I needed to take advantage of this healing tool, this powerful healing tool, that I ordered NARP and I selected the option where I had to pay $20 each month. And when you think about it, $20 a month is not that much money, especially when a lot of people spend more than that in a week getting Starbucks. But I'm glad I took the plunge and I'm glad I got NARP. It was just, it was the thing that I needed to shift and raise my vibrations so they were no longer a match for those of the NARC. And when I started shifting on the inside, my life started shifting on the outside. NARP is like a NARC repellent. I mean, you could just have a nice commercial that says NARC off with NARC. I love that. I love that. And Elizabeth in the group when she gave us her huge NARC explanations of words, they were just so amazing. And and we do, we have a lovely expression in the group, which is keep NARPing on. That's right. Keep NARPing on. Oh, that's... We're all so happy for you in the group, Naringa. It's just been an absolute joy and your inspirational posts about, you know, how positive and strong you've been and how the things have fallen into place. It's just been an absolute joy. We've all been there barracking for you in the background and seeing what's happened. And it's just so gorgeous to have you as another thriver that's broken through. And because you're, you're 55, aren't you, Naringa? Yes, I am. I turned 55 in May. <gasps> And 55 and looking forward to a glorious, incredible, creative, loving, amazing life. How divine is that? Oh, narc-free life. That's divine. Absolutely. And it's all, it can be joy and creation from here. Yeah. It doesn't matter what age we line up. It doesn't matter what age we start. It doesn't matter. You know, we get into the the source and the system of life and there's only now and that's when we take off. And for anybody out there, don't worry about your age. Oh, no. It's just a number. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you so much, Naringa, for coming on and being a thriver and sharing your incredible inspirational story. And so lots of love to you, Naringa. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. So everyone, I hope you enjoyed the show and we'll be back with another Thriver show in a few weeks and for those of you that are napping, keep napping on. Keep clearing out that fear and that pain so that you can align and you can open up to to the magnificence and the abundance of source and who you are because that is who you really are. That stuff is not your reality. Who you are is abundant and free and loving and loved. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And Naringa also, too. Actually, I hadn't asked Naringa, but I'm sure Naringa's fine with this. Naringa, are you okay to answer the comments on the blog for people? 
Yes, I, I will try to do my best. I mean, time has been a little bit of a challenge, but I will um, I will keep an eye out for it, and if and I will be happy to do my best to answer whatever questions folks may have. And I'm sure people will be understanding. They know you're a busy woman, and if you can't be there, Naringa, and people really need an answer, I can certainly jump in for you. So it's all perfect. Oh, thank you. So that's... Yeah, you're welcome. So that's it, everybody. Lots of love, and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.